Happy Tag Tuesday. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. We're in a, um, we're doing a, a, a not often Sunday record. No. Yeah. We're not normally doing this and we're doing it a little bit with the, the help of technology. <laughs> we are technology, technology, <laughs> and verbally. We're technology challenged. <laughs> and verbally challenged. And verbally challenged. Um, <laughs> we're sitting here on a Zoom. With one of our favorite people. Absolutely, Mr. Aiden Bloomstein. Aiden Bloomstein is with us. He is also known as our editor, editor our, our editor that can do everything <laughs> to make us sound really good. So we're happy to have him on so that the folks, we've had Aiden on before, so folks have heard him. But um, this is a little bit more interesting topic than um, maybe one would expect, especially for a Sunday. We're going to be talking about the... Palestinian-Israel conflict. Yeah, you know, I think it, it kind of, I was thinking about the juxtaposition of this conversation we're going to have. I went to church today. Yeah. And Congratulations. Thank you. Show I off. made it. I don't mean to brag, but. <laughs> I think you do. I didn't. I don't. But I went to my own ward, my own church, which was at 9 a.m. And then I went to double church because my grandkids had a special primary program. And primary in our church is for the kids three and to 12 mm -hmm. and they every year they put on a program in during sacrament meeting and they're singing and talking about what they've learned during the year mm -hmm. and the songs themselves are very sweet and we went there and like always it made me cry because I'm watching these sweet kind-hearted spirits up there just belting out the music about Jesus belting out lyrics about treating others with kindness and respect and love and I thought this is the future right these are our future leaders these are the future of of what we are the best part of us and I knew we were going to come and speak about this today mm -hmm. and it really really hit me while I was sitting there listening to these beautiful children sing about these wonderful things and knowing that around the world right now specifically in, in Israel and in Palestine there's kids there that are scared, that are not living this kind of life, that are really struggling, and people all around are struggling. I don't know about you guys, but I have had a, I've kind of had a rough time this week with all that has been going on. Mm. It's well, it's a lot, and the, um, you know, I always try and side with the media because I, st I still identify as one of them. Um, it's a very difficult conflict to cover. Uh, I think I see the news, um, the big news outlets having a very difficult time being not fair, but giving equal coverage to either side. And uh, I noticed one of the big stations in L.A. on Friday night. I'm not going to mention which one. We were watching it. I don't watch local news that much, but it came on after Dateline. I mean, I'll be honest. It just <laughs> came on after Dateline, so I was watching it. Um, and they had two pro-Israel um, interviews 
live interviews. They were really well done. They were major gets, as they say in the news industry. It's like, can't believe you got that. There was a guy who actually traveled over uh, purposely to be a part of the, the conflict, came back, brought his kids back safely, and was on his way out again to go over there and help out. Um, I said as soon as they were done with that specific story, they moved on to something else, and I said to my husband, that's only they only covered one side of the story. I don't care which side you land on. As a news organization, you have to cover both sides equally, and this is going to be really outside the box. You have to use the word terrorism. Yes. And they're trying very hard. Some news agencies, I'm just going to blanket it, are trying very hard to steer away from that word. And it's like, well, no, no, no. You're presenting fact. And uh, fact is that the, there's terrorism happening. And so I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure how the news agencies are faring. I, I'm guessing there's a lot of tension in those newsrooms and in the early morning meetings that they have because um it's it's a very difficult it's a difficult topic to cover in the first place because we here in america don't have a great understanding you know as you would if you were in it but also so how do you dumb it down for the peoples basically you know for your masses how do you get it so that people understand what the story is that you're telling also um those sides are so uh vast in their divide that the news is trying to news agencies are trying to like walk this middle ground it's like no 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 no. you tell one side and then you tell the other it's a very difficult thing to do as a news organization and i'm not sure how well it's going have you watched any of the of the news coverage i don't watch i i did turn on cnn one time um early on and i just decided it it doesn't give you enough coverage so i listen to a lot of podcasts i listen to a lot of independent news people speaking politically about things for me that gives me a little bit more of an understanding of what's going on I've heard other groups speaking outside of themselves and I don't know if they should be speaking for a group a large group of people and because this is there's no easy way of understanding this I don't understand both sides specifically but I think that's why I wanted to have um, Aiden on today mm -hmm. Well, and Aiden, uh, as a college student, what year are you in there at USC? Yeah, hi everyone. Thanks for having me on. First of all, um, this is uh, this this has been a uh, a, a tough week, um, but I'll kind of give the reason why I'm on this side of the podcast for this week, uh, talking about talking about this issue. So I'm a third year public policy student at USC. Um, I on campus. I serve on the board of Trojans for Israel, which is a uh, pro-Israel advocacy um, group on campus that promotes uh, Israeli and U.S. Uh, foreign relations um, on campus. Specifically, I'm the strategic initiatives uh, director for them. Um, and in March of this year, I was in Israel and studied this conflict for i think it was 12 days we were on the ground we went to uh, pretty much uh, the entire the majority of the country um it's quite small so it doesn't take very long to get from one place to another so we uh, started our trip in jerusalem um, went to uh, the west bank um, in areas a ramallah and uh, bethlehem which i'm sure we'll get into why it's called uh, area a in the first place and then we went up to the north um, to the Golan Heights 
at the Israeli-Syrian border that has become very active in the past few days. Uh, then we went down to southern Israel to Stirot, which I'm sure everyone has heard, and Ashkelon, um, and right outside of uh, Gaza Strip. So everywhere that you've been seeing in the news, Denise, I'm sure when you were watching CNN, these, these, uh, these towns um, have been said. And I was just there a few months ago, which is quite, quite startling and quite crazy. I have an article pulled up of one of the kibbutz that I went to. And it's just what is a kibbutz? What is a kibbutz? Yeah, yeah. so a kibbutz is a... Um, in 1948, when Israel became a nation, 1947, the uh, development was largely structured around these kibbutz systems, which is a communal living uh, arrangement. So people will live, typically it's in the Negev, in the desert, uh, and they have different homes along this large piece of property and everyone that works outside of the kibbutz gives money to the kibbutz directly and then that kibbutz will redistribute the money to different needs that people will have it's a bit practically a socialist society that runs very very well and people absolutely love it that live there um, they take care of your health care your if you need a new shirt you go to the kibbutz they buy you a new shirt like it's it's a very well-run program that is quite popular, especially in southern Israel and in the north, not so much in Tel Aviv. How many people usually, typically, will live in a, in a, in a group like this? Yeah, so the, the kibbutz in southern Israel, just right side of the Gaza Strip, that I uh, visited had 400 people um, hmm. that lived in it. Is that particular kibbutz one that um, was destroyed recently, or do you know how they're faring? Yeah, um, so not great. Most of those kibbutz in southern Israel have, were attacked. And um, let's see, there were 400 people in, in this kibbutz, and it was uh, Hamas invaded, and there was large massacres and lots of killing um, that occurred. I can't see a exact number, but, but yeah, this is one. I saw a video... Um, of this exact kibbutz of Hamas terrorists entering um, and um, starting to kill and kidnap those kibbutz residents. So just to back it up a little bit, um, as, as both of us mentioned, both Denise and I, it's a, it's a complicated and complex situation over there, has been for many, many, many years. Can you just give us like a, a brief history of the state of Israel? So that we're all on yeah. the same page. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm going to do my absolute best to keep it brief here. They teach entire semester <laughs> courses on this history. Um, so I am intentionally skipping over parts um, that I hope not not to offend anyone. Um, but just for the sake of time and for the sake of clarity, I'm going to move extraordinarily quickly through this. Now, <laughs> let's move back to 1917 with the Balfour Declaration. Um, during World War I, the Ottoman Empire controlled this part of what we now know as modern-day Israel. The British Foreign Secretary, James, Ar James uh, Arthur Balfour, submitted a letter of intent establishing um, that area as the Jewish homeland. Now, fast forward, World War II ended allied, with an allied victory, 400-year Ottoman Empire ruled ended, and Great Britain took over what is now that area, modern-day Israel. Now, that was called the British Mandate for a long, long time. Until World War II occurred, 
and there was a UN declaration that established the state of Israel. Now, once that once that occurred, it only took 24, uh, so, sorry, 11 minutes for the United States to recognize the state of Israel. And then within 24 hours, the armies of Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, and Iraq attacked Israel. Now, let's just get some basic geography. And if you have a map with you while you're listening to this, it may be a good idea to pull it up. So in the north, we have Lebanon which will also, a little bit later in the pod, we'll talk about Hezbollah, which operates as a terrorist organization that operates in southern Lebanon. Then to the east, we have, to the northeast, we have Syria, which is, huh, it's very, very close ties to Iran. Then on the east, we have Jordan. In the south, we have Egypt. And those are kind of our main state actors. Um, and then, yeah, Iraq, did, did their own thing and came in and invaded as well. Now, after uh, that brief invasion, Israel obviously uh, beat them. And now we move on to the 1956 Sinai campaign. Uh, and that was another war that dealt with the Sinai Peninsula, which is in the south of Israel. And that's kind of the, the border of Egypt and Israel. Then we have the 1967 Six Day War the 1973 October War, the, uh, we had a peace agreement between Egypt and, and Israel between 1977 and 1979. That was the first peace agreement between Israel and an Arab nation. Then we had a 1982 Lebanon invasion from the north. And then one of the key events that we start getting to um, interactions with the Palestinians, no longer state actors, was in 1987, the first Intifada. Mm -hmm. Now, this is what we'll um, kind of describe as the Palestinians being upset at the current situation, the status quo that Israel uh, had over their occupation or the, uh, what they felt as an occupation. So this was a large just political uprising. It wasn't violent. The Palestinians at that time didn't have the type of armament that they currently do. Uh, so it, it, it's, it's also known as like the uh, a stone uprising because there's photos and videos of kids like throwing throwing stones. Um, now, fast forward 1993, the Oslo Accords. Now, this is very very important of a agreement between Israel, the United, brokered by the United States, the Clinton administration, and the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation uh, Organization. Now, this. Oslo Accord set the stage for a two-state solution, but it established a few key boundaries that we should be focused on today. So first, it established the West Bank. Also, some uh, Israelis and some Jews may call that Judea Samaria. For the purpose of this podcast, we'll call it the West Bank. It created that board boundary, but then internally, it created different areas within the, uh, in the West Bank. That included Area A, B, and C. Area A is full Palestinian control in two sectors. One being security, all security forces, and two being civil. Think of schools, who picks up your trash, who operates the municipality. So Area A, fully controlled by the now Palestinian Authority. Area B is civil, controlled by the Palestinian Authority, and security, controlled by Israel. Area C 
security controlled by Israel and civil controlled by Israel. Now that is how the West Bank is broken up. And it honestly looks like Swiss cheese with different blops of uh, areas, A, B, C, and then you throw in Israeli settlements into that. And that's a whole nother discussion. But then it also established the uh, Gaza Strip, which now we know as um, Southern Israel, but also still kind of Central Israel because it, uh, the bottom part of Israel goes down into the Sinai Peninsula. But for the purpose of this, well, let's just call it Southern Israel. Uh, it established that border as the Gaza Strip. Now, it gave full control to the Palestinian uh, Authority over the Gaza Strip in 1993. Um, and so Israel was still in control. Gaza Strip has been fought over by Egypt and Israel uh, prior to this. Um, and that was all uh, sorted out in the Egyptian-Israeli peace agreement in that 1977 to 1979 uh, time period that gave it to um, the Egyptians, didn't give it to Israel. Now, yep. Can I ask a question? Why is the Gaza Strip so important to so many countries? Hmm. Yeah, interesting question. So I think there's potentially a few reasons. Um, one... It has prime access to the Mediterranean. Um, it's right on the Med, so it borders Israel, the Mediterranean, and Egypt. Um, so it, it has an it's an interesting location, but there's also uh, it's it's a very densely populated area. Um, it's one of the most densely populated areas in the world. In this very 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 small strip of land, there's two million people that live there. So it's not always what how important is the land, it's how important are those 2 million people and who's going to take them. That is a very, very big question that we're starting to get into modern day conflict. Now, I'd like to mention the 2002nd Intifada. This was from 2000 to 2005. Intifada uh, largely translates into uprising. This was a much, much more violent uprising from the Palestinians. Um, in their disagreement with the Oslo Accords and, again, the current status quo and things not changing because of this agreement. Um, I, I would like to mention that Israel also was, the Israeli people were not happy with the Oslo Accords um, and actually assassinated the prime minister of Israel that signed that agreement. Now, 2000, uh, Second Intifada, much, much more violent. That included Palestinians... Uh, suicide bombers that included um, Israeli buses being taken over and blown up. It was a very, very violent period from 2000 to 2005. Now we're starting to get into um, why Gaza looks like Gaza currently in 2023. In 2005, Israel completely pulls out of Gaza all and handed it over to the uh, Palestinian Authority for them to operate, full military withdrawal. So it became um, under, under their control. Now, in 2007, there was a battle of Gaza when Hamas tried to take over Gaza. Now, this occurred because there was an election in Gaza between the Fatah, which is a Palestinian um, political group, and Hamas. Hamas won the election and then started to brutally execute and take prisoners or expelled members of the Fatah. Now, this is Hamas attacking 
the Palestinian Authority officials. So now, 2023, the Gaza Strip is under complete control by Hamas. The comparison is to Afghanistan, where the Taliban are in control and are the ruling party. Now, but instead of the Taliban being the Taliban, the Taliban are the are ISIS controlling uh, Afghanistan. So it would be like ISIS controlling Afghanistan is basically uh, a decent comparison to Hamas controlling Gaza Strip. Now, most countries, now I say most because Iran exists, consider Hamas as a terrorist organization, and they've definitely proved that they are in the past week, a little over a week. And now that is the current, the current situation, geopolitical situation of Israel and, and the Gaza Strip. And I've, of course, I've missed things and skimmed over things, and it's much, much more complex, but I think that's a decent understanding of, of what's going on. Can, can we just go back for just one second? Because when you talk about the Gaza Strip, I think it's important for people to really understand Palestinian, the Palestinian people and Hamas are not the same same groups, right? Hamas is different, diff- completely separate from the Palestinian Authority. They're different parts of uh, the different parties that control uh, different areas. Um, I don't want it to be missed out that members of Hamas are Palestinians. Um, of course, not all Palestinians are Hamas. That's very, very clear. Um, but the Gaza Strip is probably the biggest humanitarian crisis in the world before this incident occurred and th- these terrorist attacks occurred. Uh, when I was there, one of the major issues is uh, that we were discussing, I actually spoke with the last Israeli mayor of Gaza before they pulled out in 2005. And he gave kind of a, a good breakdown of the situation. Um, so they, Israel supplies a lot of aid, gives a lot of aid to, to Gaza Strip. They operate, they give them electricity, they operate the electrical plants, um, they operate the water desal plants. Um, because of the proximity to the men, there is a desal plant just right outside of Gaza border. In Israel, and then they pump that water to uh, to Gaza. But they're having an issue at that plant because Hamas is dumping all of the sewer and sewage into the Mediterranean. So there's an environmental crisis. But that sewage is then getting into the desal plant, and it can't. Um, it's designed to filter out salt water, not sewage. Um, so there was issues there. There's rolling blackouts constantly in Gaza Strip because there's a lack of electricity. Think of like California when the grid gets really uh, overpowered, they have to start shutting off sectors. That's what happens in Gaza daily. Now to talk about what the role that Israel should play in humanitarian aid, um, 1,300 Israelis have died from Hamas attacks in the past week. And the world still expects them to supply Hamas with electricity, with water, with aid. And it's a very, very difficult thing for Israeli politicians to deal with. Because you're generally supporting those that have murdered your citizens, massacred them in southern Israel. Mm -hmm. 
And so it's asking a lot of a nation that you're at war with to keep the aid coming. It's a tricky situation that I don't know the answer to. Palestinians are hurting. Palestinians are suffering in Gaza. They're dying. But yet it's still up to Israel to support them. I don't know if that's if that's the best case scenario. What would prevent Israel from just saying, we're cutting off, we're cutting everything off? So they did. They did. And this past week, uh, Israel shut off water, shut off electricity, and said, we'll turn it back on if you release the hostages. Seems like a fair ultimatum. No hostages were released. The entire international community has been pushing, including the Biden administration, has been pushing Israel to turn back on the power and turn back on the water. And they said, we'll do it. They just have to release the 123 people that they have hostage. Hamas has yet to do it. I guess my question was, part of the problem is that maybe the public is having is that amongst the Palestinians, there are Hamas, but the two are not mutually inclusive. So you're punishing people that are not members of a terrorist organization because culturally they're associated with those people. Sure, but Hamas deliberately conceals its military operations and assets inside civilian areas, homes, mosques, hospitals, in an attempt for that position to be made, that we can attack them because there are civilians. Well, yes, Mm -hmm. but Hamas is deliberately putting their military assets and hosting military operations in homes, mosques, and hospitals And under international law, if a civilian structure is used for military purposes, then it becomes a legitimate military target, unfortunately. We saw that during the Revolutionary War. Unfortunately, now this is just me talking, I have no evidence to back this up. I believe that this terrorist attack was perpetrated because Hamas wanted this exact situation to occur. They're going to strike at an unbelievable rate where Israel has no other... Uh, option than to respond in kind and have an even greater response. That's what Hamas was betting on because they know that they've infiltrated the civilian population within Gaza and that when Israel does strike and strike back hard, civilian Palestinians will die. Undoubtedly. That was their goal. And then when that narrative starts to be spread throughout the entire world, Israel starts to lose support from the international community because Palestinians are dying, civilians are dying. However, this was a provoked attack from Hamas, and they knew what was going to occur when they did it. They're not looking for, uh, let me rephrase. When I visited southern Israel, I went to Stidot, which is a city right outside of Gaza. I went to a playground, and I saw this big, a snake caterpillar looking thing in the play and looked like a play structure and I go up to it and I walk inside and it's not a play structure it's a bomb shelter it's inches thick of concrete that's used for when children hear sirens to run into to escape rockets and I asked the former Gaza mayor I say so they have all of these bomb shelters here in Israel What do the bomb shelters look like in Gaza? And he laughed in my face. He said, Hamas does not build bomb shelters for their people. Once Hamas got elected, 
Palestinians cannot speak out against them. I mean, we're talking about a terrorist group that will literally kill you on the spot if they find out that you have anything to do with not supporting them. And I, I, I don't want to characterize um, the day-to-day Hamas uh, governing. I don't know what it looks like completely in, in Gaza. Um, but I agree with your, your point, how we take Western values and put them in, uh, into the Middle East. And that just doesn't occur. That, that it, it can't mm-hmm. happen. So, um, the idea that well, why don't they just elect someone else? Um, that's not how it works. The people with the biggest guns, the people with that can have spew the most violence, those are the ones that are in power. And we saw that in Afghanistan, um, where the Afghan government fell, and the strongest people in the region took power and that was the Taliban, the terrorist organization. How in the world did this get past their intelligence agencies to where you have these kamikaze fighters basically coming over and shooting and bombing civilians at a major music festival? Yeah, so I can kind of bring us back to that Saturday, October 7th, um, which coincided with the Jewish holiday, marking the end of the high holiday season. Um, Hamas carried out a series of unprovoked, murderous, barbaric attacks. Um, They invaded southern Israel, rampaged Israeli towns near the border, and slaughtered and kidnapped Israeli citizens, including um, in the uh, music festival. Um, Among the murdered Israelis were infants, um, elderly, men, women, and children torn from their homes and massacred on their front lawns. Um, simultaneously, Hamas fired thousands of rockets from Gaza at Israeli civilian territories across the country. Again, it's a very, very small country. A, a rocket can reach from Gaza to uh, Tel Aviv. Um, currently, uh, there's 1,300 plus Israelis dead, thousands injured, um, and still hundreds of men, women, and children that were kidnapped, drug across uh, the border back into Gaza Strip. And if I'm I'd like to apologize to anyone that has seen the images um, coming out of Israel because they're completely horrific and barbaric um, and disgusting um, that are direct uh, reminiscence of, of ISIS. And that is exactly what Hamas is. They are, uh, they are ISIS. Um, and that has been the situation since Saturday rockets continually are fired. I'm getting like updates and texts on my phone of more rockets to Tel Aviv, more rockets to southern Israel. Um, but then also when Hamas uh, acted, it radicalized the rest of the region um, to look to attack Israel. In the north, in Lebanon, southern Lebanon, Hezbollah is the, they control a lot of, uh, a lot of southern Lebanon. They've continued some some attacks. They attempted an, occur- an incursion that uh, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, fought back, and there's been continuous strikes in uh, southern Lebanon. Now, in the background of all of this is Iran. Um, Hamas, I do not believe, have the capability to be as organized and as strategic as they are in southern Israel without the support of Iran. Now, if Iran becomes directly involved in the conflict where there are Iranian soldiers in Gaza fighting against Israelis, um, that would then cause the United States to become militarily involved 
We currently have a large, large force in the Eastern Mediterranean. We have two, currently, Carrier Strike Group 12 with another Carrier Strike Group on its way. Now, there, that includes two aircraft carriers, the USS Gerald Ford, USS Eisenhower, two class cruisers, seven destroyers, one air destroyer that's used for anti-submarines, five frigates, and two landing support ships. We have a massive military presence in the Eastern Med for the deterrence of state actors. That includes Iran primarily. There's rumblings, and they are pretty sure that not only did Iran aid them um, in organizing them, that they're providing assistance, monetary assistance to them. There's been a lot of information coming about about the money that we froze. It, and can you just talk a little bit about that? Because yeah. again, yeah. We, we, we act as though we're just hands off. Nobody's doing anything wrong here. And yet we could be major players in this unknowingly or knowingly and maybe not doing something about it. Yeah, this has been a uh, criticism from the uh, from right wing individuals in the United States that have said that the Biden administration has given six million dollars to uh, the Iranian government um, for a hostage uh, payment. Um, that is not true. So that six million dollars has not been dispersed to the Iranians and is still in a holding bank that the United States is very, very closely monitoring and have, has completely frozen. So just like to be very, very factual in this, um, that $6 million that the Biden administration paid some weeks ago has not reached the hands of Iranians, and I do not believe reached the hands of Hamas. That was, they were, there was a lot of speculation. There's still a lot of people talking about that because they yes. believe that Iran, uh, that they believe that they have the $6 million coming, so they're spending their money, and Hamas is the benefactor. But again, we don't we don't know. Those are just those and, are what and what's going on. Sure. And Hamas, uh, excuse me, Iran supports all of the terrorist organizations um, in that area. They support Hezbollah. They support um, Islamic Jihad in in Syria. They support Islamic Jihad in the in, in northern Africa. And, of, of course, Hamas. They are the largest state sponsors of terror. What is happening on the campus there at, at USC? What, have, what are you seeing happening with, yeah. you know, Americans involved in, sure. especially on the collegiate level? Um, yeah, and like I said, I uh, am on the board of Trojans for Israel on campus. So this past week, and I have experience in communications, and so this past week has been crisis communications to the max statements, speeches, all of the above um, have been distributed from our organization. Uh, Tuesday, uh, sorry, let me back up. Over the weekend, um, we put out a few statements and our goal as student leaders throughout this entire conflict was to not bring our campus into a political argument. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict really had no uh, bearing on the decisions that we were making, we were simply looking to do two things. One, condemn terrorism in every form. And two, support the suffering um, and the grief of Jewish students as well as Palestinian students on campus. 
Monday night, we held a community support gathering at the Hillel on campus where 50 or so students came to talk about their feelings, um, what's going on internally, um, and kind of air that out because it is a very isolating thing for many Jewish students on campus. They feel alone. And they felt that for the past 3,000 years, their people have been attacked and have been uh, victims to, to genocide. And frankly, they're tired, they're scared, and they're done being targets. That was Monday night. Tuesday night, we held a vigil at a very, very central place on campus that was filled with impassioned speeches from Jewish students where their friends haven't been returning their phone calls because they're our age and there's been 360,000 Israeli reservists that have been called up to serve in the IDF and many of those are people my age that my friends have friends that are there serving and they haven't been haven't heard back from them. Many Jewish students have family in Israel that has come under attack, and so they're hurting, and people are hurting. That included speeches from different um, Jewish leaders, the executive director of Hillel and the Chabad on campus. Um, and then at the end of this vigil, we turn around, and I was in the front, and I see a group of uh, Palestinian protesters in the back that had signs of a Palestinian flag um, and they were completely silent protesters which was interesting and they had one had a sign that said uh, we're silent because our voices in the world are silent as well um, and this was very troubling for Jewish students that have just finished crying grieving it wasn't a, a political rally um, they just needed this a space to um, live out their emotions. And then they turn around and they see a pro-Palestinian protest behind them. This was very concerning for a lot of students, luckily. Um, unlike many places in the United States, it didn't become violent. The Jewish students began dancing and singing, um, and the, the pro-Palestinians were ushered to leave by our public safety along with uh, student life. And I would like to absolutely commend the USC Department of Public Safety um, in their efforts to keep that vigil safe. There was countless officers. They closed down most of the campus through barricades um, so that Jewish students on campus could feel safe um, and secure uh, when they're mourning. So that's, that's what I've seen on campus. Of course, through X, formerly known as Twitter, we've seen much, much different scenes across the United States. Um, but luckily on USC's campus, we've done, it hasn't been um, as aggressive as many other, as many other places. Now, uh, there were, there was an intense discussion during one of our Senate meetings, our student Senate meetings right after this vigil between, um, Palestinian students and a Jewish senator, um, but nothing ever uh, turns violent or, or aggressive in, in any way. Has USC come out with a statement that sort of straddles both sides? So there's been two statements from the university. The first statement um, was straddling both sides, 
was uh, not what Jewish students on campus were looking for. Um, it was written with very, very careful prose to not offend any community on campus. Um, and that received, our president received a lot of pushback from the student body because of that. I guess um, we were looking for her to condemn terrorism and that didn't occur in her initial statement. A few days later, she comes back with another statement um, that unequivocally condemned terrorism and violence, and that's all that they were looking for. They weren't through all of this. Most of the Jewish students and the Jewish community on USC's campus, at least I can't speak for everyone, have not been looking for people to take sides in the conflict. It's a, I'm sure, as our listeners can figure out, that this is an extraordinarily complex. A geopolitical discussion that many experts have difficult times wrapping their heads around. So, no, we don't expect anyone to make a comment for Israel for Palestine or take a position. But we would think that it is human nature and human decency to condemn terrorism and condemn violence. And that's all we were looking for. And that's all anyone's really looking for during all of this. Is there anything planned on the campus uh, upcoming? Um, with your the Jewish Federation that you that you belong to and support, is there anything planned that is in support of you know either side at this point? So luckily, we've been on our fall break for the past few days, um, which has really given the USC community time to calm down after uh, the attacks. So we've been gone for a few days now. Um, this upcoming week, no. Um, I haven't seen anything planned, any any activities on campus. Um, I think, Denise, to your point, um, things aren't going to get better in the upcoming in the coming days. Um, it's not uh, things aren't over. Israel has has yet to respond in the ways that we think they're going to. Um, we should. The world should be expecting a full ground invasion of northern Gaza, which is where Hamas uh, operates most of its military, um, has most of its military operations in northern Gaza. Mm -hmm. And that has yet to occur. When that does occur, I couldn't suspect that the international community and the world will begin to start to turn their favor against Israel and condemn them for certain uh, actions that they're taking. And while we condemn violence and terrorism, that also goes hand in hand with supporting actions against to fight terrorism and against responding in kind. So my sus suspicion is that things will change um, in the coming days with the world's view on the current situation, um, but we should expect things to get worse, more civilians to die uh, before things will get better. I, I cannot stress how, how tiny this, this area is, and there's two million people that live there. It's unbelievable to see photos, because I was just on the very outside. We couldn't go into Gaza Strip, obviously, um, but there's building upon building upon building everywhere, scattered. There's no order. There's It's just it's unimaginable to see and there's two million people out there mm. Hamas implements and embeds itself within civilian areas 
in high rises in hospitals mm-hmm. for Israel to strike and then civilians die. Yeah. That's their MO. Yeah. That's the game that they play. And it's sick and it's barbaric. And the world needs to know that. The world needs to know that Hamas is embedded within the civilian population in, in Gaza Strait. Purposeful. It's all purposeful, of course, which is then creating an untenable situation. How do you fight back as Israelis without sure. killing civilians? Uh, it's yeah. it's part, of, part of the entire plan from Hamas. So they're getting exactly what they want, which is to not only win the battle, but to win the popular war of the international community, as you said, will eventually turn on Israel when they do fight back. And there are certain strategic ways that Israel lets people know to get out of an area. There's three they ways. They have been doing that. that it, mm-hmm. Yes. So one is this a thing called roof knocking. On top of a building, the IAF, the Israeli Air Force, will drop a non-explosive low-yield device on the roof, creating a very loud noise. That is to tell everyone that's in that building, it's coming down. We are going to take it down with our missiles, and it will crumble. So get the hell out now. I don't know if you saw videos, but it's very, very scary of thousands and thousands and thousands of paper leaflets being dropped by Israel in northern Mm -hmm. Gaza saying evacuate immediately because we're coming. That's number two. And number three, it's a massive PR campaign from Israel to say, it's very clear now, get out of northern Gaza because we're coming. It's been in videos by Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, from IDF officials, but they also send texts to Palestinians and message blasts to localized areas where they're, where they're going to launch missiles. Missiles. I don't know. In the news, there was a hospital in northern Gaza um, that has been covered recently, and um, Israel gave an evacuation notice for that hospital because what Hamas does, they implement themselves in the basement of these hospitals. Major military operations occur at the basement of these hospitals. So Israel said, you need to evacuate this hospital. People need to leave because we're taking it down. And people refuse. Mm. They don't do it. They don't leave. Or Hamas forces them to stay. Now, we've seen this in, uh, in the coming days where many people are fleeing from northern um, is in, uh, from Gaza City, which is in the north, in northern Gaza, to the south of Wadi Gaza. And they've created safe passageways. Israel hasn't created safe passageways. There's been passageways um, for Palestinians to escape northern, uh, northern Israel and Gaza City. But Hamas mm-hmm. is preventing civilians from evacuating by obstructing these safe passages with IED landmines. I saw a video this morning of flatbed truck being exploded mm-hmm. on one of the streets that is leading to southern Israel, killing Palestinians, blocking the road. They're parking semi-trucks from 
uh, Gaza City to the southern southern so so Palestinians have to stay, and Hamas is preventing them from escaping, so they die, so they die at the hands of the IDF, because Hamas is forcing them to stay in the north, and that's why we see a large number of Palestinians dying. That's also why the the term terrorism and terrorist needs to be used because that is terrorist activity by its very definition. If someone um, wants to support someone from Israel, what do you suggest? Yeah, so I'm not Jewish. I am the uh, only board member on our uh, uh, <laughs> Trojans for Israel board that is not Jewish. Um, and so Good it's been you. a time for, for me to step up for, our, for my Jewish friends and for our Jewish community on campus because they're hurting, they're mourning. Um, and so I said, okay, now it's, it's, it's my turn, my turn to help. Um, they've supported me through so much, and uh, this is the absolute least I could do. So for non-Jews, your Jewish friends are hurting. They're hurting. They feel an unbreakable connection to the people of Israel, but also the land, the land of Israel that they believe is their ancestral homeland. So when it's attacked, they feel as if they're attacked as well. They're not doing okay, so how are you doing is not always a great question, but a text of, I support you, I stand with you, I'm here if you need me at all, I love you, those are all texts that non-Jews should be sending to their Jewish friends because that's what they want to hear. It's not, not how are you doing, because of course they're not doing great. This is not a great situation. This is violence and terrorism and their people being slaughtered in the streets um but knowing that uh, non-jewish people support uh, state of israel and support jewish people i think goes a very long way i just want to be able to do my part and um help if there's anything i can do i think aiden's point is excellent mm -hmm. um you have jewish friends and uh co-workers uh, that you know and as do we and um, lots of lots of wonderful people here in the US that are that are hurting some and of my best friends mm -hmm. I mean really yeah. I mean some of the best people I know yeah absolutely and Aiden's correct in his point that just send a quick text not how are you but hey I'm you know I support you I love you and we're absolutely we're absolutely here for you so we appreciate you coming on with us today Aiden on a Sunday talking about such a heavy topic but we knew as a college student and someone who's visited the area within the past year that you had an interesting perspective on it so we really are grateful that you were available and willing to share that with us yeah thanks so much for having me all right that does it for this edition of two average girls I'm Ann Police and I'm Denise Cooper and that is Aiden Bloomstein we're so grateful to have you on thank you for joining us we'll see you next time of Two Average Girls are free wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to hit the follow or subscribe button on the Two Average Girls main page so you never have to go searching for new episodes. Our editor is Aiden Bloomstein. Our social media producer is Samantha Stone. And original music for Two Average Girls is by Jason Kreese.